from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, using data to drive sustainable transportation, why only 4% of companies are achieving their sustainability goals, the latest crop of startups seek the limelight, and the perils of microfibers in the food chain. It's the little things this week on 350. It's August 17th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from the Eastern Time Zone of the United States is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Hello Joel. Heather. It's actually somewhat sunny here today after many, many, many days of rain. I, uh, so I'm happy to happy to be looking out my window into the lovely blue sky. So you came back from Ireland and went into rain. That feels I, it, yeah. I feel tragic. like I've been in rain all summer. Actually, it's been very wet here on the East Coast. Uh, just tons and tons of water. I mean, I guess that's not the way the, the right thing. Gallons and gallons of water. <laughs> um, I saw a, a, a cartoon uh, this week, editorial cartoon, where it basically says the great new infrastructure project is to take a giant straw from all the East Coast rain and dump it on the fires on the West Coast. It's a visual gag that not as funny in the description, but uh, there's something there that we are... Uh, not as uh, we're not inhaling too much smoke here in the Bay Area, but there's definitely a haze uh, out there that's uh, born of the uh, uh, just incredible fires going on throughout the state, and uh, it's worse certainly in other parts of the state. And we could definitely use your water. We could definitely use balance, right? Right. I just uh, it's a. Uh... It's the world we live in. I'm not sure if you saw Tom Friedman's uh, op-ed this week. I think it ran Wednesday or Thursday talking about how climate change could become a, a big issue in the 2020 campaign and, and talked just really where he catalogs <laughs> all that's going on uh, just this summer uh, in the world in terms of extreme weather and a number of other things and, and how uh, that's just becoming something you can't ignore anymore. And his claim is that by 2020 or whenever the campaign gets going, probably November 7th, 2018, it'll get going the day after the midterms, that the economy and some other issues, immigration perhaps won't be as much of a game changer as will climate change. So I don't know if that's true, uh, but it's a really fascinating column to read if you can check that out. Well, actually, but, you know, I'm just going to uh, offer a slight counter or just a, a more context around that. I mean, if you think about the uh, the thing that happened with the, Dem the DNC this week, the Democratic National Committee, um, they were going to ban fossil fuels money, right? They had adopted a policy a couple months ago to, to not take it. Um, and they decided to change that in large part because of um, uh, jobs, right? So the labor unions representing the fossil fuel industries sort of said, hey, hello, we, there's a lot of jobs associated with this. Um, meanwhile, the clean energy jobs don't have as much union representation. So that could be um, a small wild card, not small, but a wild card on that climate change issue. So yeah, absolutely. I, I hope I hope you're right. I hope Friedman's right. But I also um, sense that we're going to have a lot of debates over 
um, which jobs are more real and which jobs are more valuable and so forth. That, that could get very interesting. Yeah, and, and and Tom talks about this in his column. He he refers to a recent clean energy industry study found that 714,257 people in 12 Midwestern states work in renewable energy uh, generation, clean transmission, energy efficiency, clean fuels, and advanced transportation. And in Ohio alone, there's 108,000 compared to only 38,000 in the coal, oil, and gas fields. So to your point, it's, uh, there is this great job uh, potential here. It's just not necessarily as organized as as the union labor in the fossil fuel industry is. So something's got to give. But right now, let's us give way to the Week in Review. So Joel, I'll start us um, with a story that uh, we had contributed by Eucelia Wang. She's a wonderful uh, contributing writer for Green Biz out of New York. And she we dispatched her to look into the recent decision by New York to set some limits on um, what the ride-hailing companies can do, Uber and Lyft. And specifically, um, the, comp- the, the city is the first in the United States to do two, two really specific things. One is they're capping, they've got a one-year moratorium on um, new, new vehicle licenses for, for drivers associated with Uber or Lyft or other ride-sharing services um, um, you know, not the big names. Um, they are also uh, putting in place um, uh, minimum wages, if you will, uh, and and part of that is because of the the erosion of the values for the taxi drivers in New York City. Um, they're they're so again, actually, a, a jobs issue, right? A a person, a, a human issue that we're facing here um, with this mobility tran- and transportation transition. So um, Eucelia has got a great analysis of uh, what New York's Uber decision portends for ride-hailing services. Um, and she, in it, she takes a look at, um, number one, some of the, the, the research that uh, New York and other cities are trying to do to, to get a better handle on what they should do, right? So part of the challenge has been that no one really knows um, exactly how these these services are impacting things. They see more traffic. They see lower wages for, for the drivers. They see um, different neighborhoods served differently than they have in the past. But because the, uh, the tech companies are driving these, these services are private, they're not necessarily sharing the data. So that, I think, is um, changing. Um, we've got some, some research going on where we will see more data being shared. Knockwood. But, you know, it's, it's pretty... This could be sort of a, um, a tipping point for for getting a better handle on what happens now. I will say that you know it, this is New York, so New York City has the power to be doing this on its own. But I but I understand like in California, uh, the state has taken control of what regulations will be put in place on these services. So that 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 things might play out a little bit differently depending on where you yeah, are. Yeah, in Texas too. Uh, in fact, the city of San Francisco is suing the state of California, always an interesting dynamic, over a state law that prevents San Francisco from regulating uh, ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft uh, through business licensing. And so we've, we're at this, it happens with a lot of new technologies. In fact, it, sometimes it takes, it's actually happened faster with Uber and, and Lyft uh, than some other things. We're just now, for example, seeing Facebook and Twitter and Google 
uh, among others, uh, you know, being looked at, you know, how much do they need to be regulated, not on this topic, but on, on cybersecurity or privacy or some other issues. Um, and they've been around a lot longer than Uber and Lyft. And now we're seeing that much more quickly than probably anyone thought uh, the, the regulatory needs are, are becoming more and more apparent and New York is, is, is stepping up and is, you know, is that, does that portend more cities, uh, you know, clamping down on these services? Uh, it's really hard to tell. Uh, and, and it's, but there's some real issues here around, you know, how much do they reduce congestion? How much do they, um, provide convenience? How much do they uh, improve the lives of the drivers? How much do they take away uh, from the, the cab drivers who are uh, already making a good living and now can't do that? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of issues here, and, and it's a sign of the success that all of a sudden they've, these problems have become as big as they have. But this is what happens with, with new technologies and new ways of doing things. I mean, we saw this in the, when the music business went digital and all of a sudden you could download and, and, and copy and move things around much more easily than you could with the CD, DVD. So this is, uh, this is progress. Right. And, I, you know, I, I'm going to go up, move us on to our second story of this week, which actually is very much related. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it sticks with the data theme. It sticks with the smart city theme. Um, uh, and for those of you who are reading along with the podcast, the, the, the headline is The Limits of Data-Driven Approaches to Planning. And this is a really thoughtful piece about, um, again, smart cities, as I mentioned before, um, but also, you know, we, we talk about how data is a sort of panacea, right? If we just get the right data, we can solve these problems. But the problem is that we don't always track the sort of data that will show us what we really need to know. And, and uh, the author, um, Joe Courtright, gives a, a couple of really interesting examples regarding the city of Houston. So, um, you know, the fact is that you talk about wanting to have more walking in, in different um, city environments and urban and climates. And in this particular city, there just aren't sidewalks. And in order to... <laughs> <laughs> in order to promote that pedestrian future, that you, we've got to get more infrastructure investments, but but we don't really know where number one where the sidewalks aren't, it, it, and it's just not something that that the city has thought to track, um, and that's just one uh, you know example. And I, we don't you know the author goes on to say he doesn't want to pick on Houston, but it because this is just one one example, um, one obvious example of of a city that isn't necessarily looking at the right things. Um, but he, he also suggests that, you know, while we think it's awesome, um, you know, we're going to get all this data from these, these great sensor, sensors, you know, there's cities all around the world, Barcelona, et cetera, that are investing in, in collecting data. Um, we don't necessarily know how to look at things. And it just underscores the issue of even if we do get this data, it doesn't necessarily going to mean it's, it's going to solve our problems. Yeah, I suppose it could help, but we're not necessarily tracking in the right places. Yeah, one great example of that is a is a data system that came out of Sidewalk Labs, which is an Alphabet slash Google spinout. Uh, they they came up with a, a new uh, data system called appropriately called Flow, um, but it really is it's all about optimizing traffic and parking. 
but it it really only looks at vehicles. It looks at cars and transit vehicles, but doesn't really look at the movement of people on foot or on bicycles or scooters or any number of other things. And as uh, Joe points out in this article, he says it's um, ironic that an entity called Sidewalk Labs appears more concerned with cars than with pedestrians. But this does go to the to the challenge of how do we track pedestrians better? How do we track bicycles, skateboarders, and all the other uh, people going on on human power? Um, you know, as he as he rightfully points out, if you don't count it, it doesn't count. And we have to get a lot better at learning how to count everything that moves, not just cars and trucks and buses. Yeah. So the final piece, actually pieces, I want to point to for the week um, is a great series on microfiber um, from actually a a writer, um, Mary Catherine O'Connor. She's done some work for us in the past. This this particular series um, she did for... um, Encia, and we were, were happy enough to be able to um, reprint the whole series, um, and it's on microfibers, and it's just a fascinating, uh, really deep dive, no pun intended, into the actual impact of these fibers on microorganisms and sort of the proof of, of how they affect animals, uh, you know, aquatic, uh, all the way up the aquatic food chain, um, and of course, those animals will eventually affect humans. Um, and it's just a fascinating, I mean, the, the, I'm just reading this just brilliantly written uh, piece on, uh, <laughs> and it's actually this wonderful image of people standing in the rain in plastic rain gear, <laughs> you know, taking the data about microfibers and, and plastics and so forth. It's kind of an irony, right? <laughs> yeah. So. so this is a big, big problem made up of little, little things. Um, but yeah, the, this is largely uh, the tiny strands of materials that are shed during textile production and use and disposal that are showing up in ecosystems around the world. In fact, they become really the most commonly detected type of microplastic debris in water samples everywhere from headwaters, streams, and rivers, and soils, and lakes, and all the way to, to the deep sea and Arctic sea ice. Um, and and then, of course, in seafood, table salt, and and more recently in public drinking water, and this is giving rise to considerable concern about the potential effects to human health, to wildlife, and, and other things. And and it's, this is a topic that's increasingly getting the attention of governments, regulators, some companies, and a lot of activists and scientists and around the world. And so. You know, we need to take some big steps on on these little little critters that are showing up everywhere. Uh, interestingly, um, there was some research out of the University of Minnesota uh, and uh, SUNY State University of New York at Fredonia that uh, MC um, Mary Catherine points to in this that analyzed um, 159 samples of tap water from 14 countries and found that there's a lot of microfibers in beer uh, and table salt and tap water. But did I mention beer? Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so this is, you know, this is something to uh, be concerned about. We don't know what these things do, and we need to find it out, and we need to, more important, we need to stop, you know, getting 
these things into the uh, into the oceans, into the ultimately into the aquatic life and the and the the aquatic and ultimately human food chain. And, and you know, and just one other thing that I did not know that really got me thinking as I was reading these these stories um, was. Uh, and we, we talk about the water issue, but it, it's actually in the air, too. Um, so, I mean, that's a human health issue. You, if you think about what comes out of your dryer, your dryer's running in your house, and what's, what's it sending out into, um, into your environment as you, as you dry those clothes with microfibers. And so um, we need to think about that part of it as well. Uh, it, so that, and that was something that I just hadn't, I hadn't thought about um, and again, I think it's I think it's wonderful that this research is going on because until we can, you know, when we can more specifically talk about the the, the human impact, I think then maybe that will force some action. And I'll use the word force because I don't know that um, there's a lot happening on the willing and the voluntary side right now, unfortunately. Well, so. there are there are some leadership companies, mm-hmm. and I think it's great. Patagonia, mm. not surprisingly, is one mm-hmm. of them because um, they, you know, if you think about Patagonia's. Apparel line. I mean, pretty much everything is made from nylon, acrylic, or polyester um, that are, are other kinds of fibers, and all of which shed these tiny little things called microfibers. and And they are well aware of this. And of course, they are uh, environmental activists uh, by nature, so to speak. And uh, um, they are very concerned about this. And so they are trying to figure this out. And I think if anyone's gonna be showing the way, um, you know, they're investigating ways to minimize the shedding by improving the, f- the construction of fabrics. Um, they're supporting scientists to gain a better understanding of, of the ecological impacts. They're investing in organizations who are working to address these issues and then trying to at least communicate this stuff, which is more than probably most apparel companies are doing. And so kudos to them, I think, uh, as I started to say, if anyone's going to you know, show the way on this, there's a good chance that it's going to be Patagonia. So we'll be providing links to all those microfiber stories and uh, definitely take a look. Recently, the consultancy Bain & Company issued one of its Bain briefs. Uh, This one's on transforming business for a sustainable economy. It talks about the benefits to companies for embracing what it calls next practices on sustainability and how companies can make sustainable irresistible for consumers and in the process achieve system changes at scale. But there was one stat for me in the report that really stood out. Bain had done a survey and among survey respondents, only 4% of companies say they've successfully succeeded in achieving their sustainability goals, compared with 47% who said they failed. I guess the other 49% uh, are still, uh, all the votes aren't in yet. But let me repeat that. Only 4% of companies say they've fully succeeded in achieving their sustainability goals. That 4% seems a little low and, frankly, a little depressing. So I asked one of the authors, Jenny Davis-Picode, who, among other things, heads Bain's Global Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility Practice, what she made of that finding. Here's what she had to say. So I guess it doesn't surprise me, though I would probably agree it is a bit depressing. Um, The sustainability change, to my mind, is harder, actually, in in many ways than uh, your kind of -of run-of-the-mill corporate change. So 
the fact that uh, all change is hard. Uh, and then I think there's a, a few things around sustainability change, which makes it harder. Um, it, yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me. It, it is probably not statistically significant, whether it's gone from two to four percent. It's still uh, it's still far too low versus the opportunities and the uh, and the needs uh, in this area. What are some of the kinds of things that you see companies struggling with the most? So firstly, and most noticeably, is that on balance, companies are not yet convinced of the need to change in this area. So despite all of the uh, press around whether it's environmental issues or social issues or what have you, the first uh, kind of what we would call change trap, like how does change get stuck, uh, is that organizations just don't see the need to change. So uh, in some of our research, we ask the question, have we convinced the organization that our, currently, our current sustainability performance is unacceptable? And actually, on average, that got an answer of less than four out of 10. Whereas in other corporate change programs, you would normally see that at a kind of nine or 10. that People are convinced they need to shift their strategy or do procurement in a more effective way or what have you. And part of the reason why people aren't convinced of the need to change is that many people still continue to view sustainability as a public reputation issue, not a business issue. And so they haven't yet brought it into the heart of what they do every day in the uh, in their business lives. And therefore, it's harder to then kind of show and, 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 and convince them that they need to do things differently. And yet you, uh, one of the next practices, as you call them in the report, is, is to create transformational ambitions using something called future back thinking. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure. So one of the lessons that we've heard from uh, the leaders in sustainability is actually a, a big first step is actually to set uh, a, a specific and tangible commitment and shout really loudly about that. And that's gotten uh, quite a number of companies to get started in a meaningful way on this journey. And if you really want to take the next step, uh, what we find is it's actually helpful. Instead of saying, I'm going to start from where I am today and say, let me cut my carbon emissions in half uh, or let me you know, eliminate my weight, 80% of waste or let me take out X amount of uh, sugar or salt from my, uh, from my children's uh, food products. Actually get people to think about what a truly sustainable future would look like. And so if you're a truly sustainable consumer products company of the future, are you still making the kinds of products that you're making today? Are you still advertising those in, in the way that you are? Actually, the world would look quite different for a consumer products company of the future where there's much more uh, tailored demand. There's much more kind of healthy products. There's products that actually are not damaging to the world. And so if you put yourself in, and there's more kind of products as a service. And so actually, instead of making stuff to sell and then have it throw away? Can you create more things that actually are a service? And if you put yourself in that future world, you can then work backwards and say, wow, that world looks really different. How am I going to get there? Uh, instead of starting from where you are today and thinking about, okay, what's the reasonable amount of change that I might be able to expect? 
Where do you see that kind of thinking living or uh, who owns that inside the company? Is that out of uh, the C-suite? Is it out of sustainability? Is it out of uh, operation strategy? Where does that best take place? Yeah, it best takes place at the C-suite for sure. And actually, uh, not just the CEO, but the business leaders. And this, again, is one of the big changes I think that companies have to go through and that sustainability leaders are uh, have already done is actually the sustainability function can be an enabler of asking yourself these fundamental business questions. But at the end of the day, a kind of future back kind of truly transformational approach is going to hit at the heart of the business, what it's about, how it makes money, what businesses it plays in, what kind of operations it has. And those are not... Uh, the purview of the sustainability department, they actually are the purview of the CEO, the heads of the business lines, uh, the uh, the head of operations. And so where sustainability needs to come much more is into the part of the business and actually those real debates about what are we doing and how are we doing it as a, as a business. In your uh, work as uh, in Bain's global sustainability and corporate responsibility practice, are you seeing companies, are they coming to you saying, can you help us be transformational or use sustainability uh, as a tool for transformation? Or is that not how the conversation starts? Talk a little bit about where the entry point is for someone like you trying to help companies do these things uh, takes place. We have two different kinds of conversations. Conversation one is with the leaders who actually have started getting ahead on these uh, on these topics and realize that now is the time to strike and really create a competitive advantage out of it. So we have companies coming to us, for example, one of my clients of global agriculture uh, commodities company said, you know, we've already made some great progress on offering traceable and sustainable cocoa or coffee or cashew, we actually think we can create a competitive advantage even more than we are today. So how do we get out ahead of it in the products that we offer, in the promise that we make to our uh, to our customers? And we see that for uh, that same kind of conversation, consumer products companies that have started uh, this journey a uh, much longer time ago will come and say, now I really want to accelerate my brand growth through this because I believe there's an advantage. That's the first kind of conversation is when people want to think kind of holistically and, and, uh, and get out ahead of it. There are still a lot of companies out there, though, who have not yet taken the first meaningful steps. Or if they have, they're finding themselves stalled in that 96% of companies that aren't achieving what they want to achieve. And so that's the other conversation that we have, which is, okay, where are you now? Why is this important? What are the areas of focus? And what are the kind of initial steps that you can take to really get yourself onto that journey? And then your job is to get them unstuck, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And help figure out what is it that is holding you back? Is it that you don't understand where this is going to create value for you or what the priorities are? Is it that you understand that, but you're running into resistance from people in the organization who say, oh, it's all too hard because you want me to hit my numbers as well as deliver on sustainability goals, and I don't know how to do that. Uh, and so really just working through what is it going to take to get them unstuck. Great. Well, I'll look forward to seeing more and more companies unstuck and that 4% number growing at least into double digits. 
Jenny Davis-Poku is a partner at Bain & Company and heads Bain's global sustainability and corporate responsibility practice based in Amsterdam. Thanks for talking to us, Jenny. Rachel, thanks very much. Really appreciate the time. It's that time of year again, and I'm not talking about the back to school or last hurrah at the beach. It's time to pick the Verge Accelerate finalists that will appear on the global stage at this year's Verge 18 conference. We've posted 20-some videos online to uh, help the community voting part of this. And here to talk about this year's crop is the impresario and host of Verge Accelerate, Green Business Own, Shauna Rappaport. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. So Verge has been, Accelerate has been going on for, I don't know, four or five years now. We've done a lot of these, and I'm wondering what trends you see in the, not just the quantity, but the quality of, of, of applicants to pitch, uh, doing two and a half minute pitches on the Verge stage. Yeah, well, Verge Accelerate is a program that has been a cornerstone of Verge actually since its inception from, I suppose, year two, our first public event. That first year was highly curated. And over the years, we've been growing our ecosystem of partners. Um, we have an awesome group of, of you know, the organizations ranging from clean energy and sort of clean tech specifically to the circular space, really mirroring our evolution and growth with Verge in general to focus on energy, transportation, and circular economy. And through that building out of our own ecosystem, we've seen a really exciting trend of not only a higher volume, but a higher quantity of nominations coming from startups truly all around the world. So this year, mirroring the three conferences uh, under one roof, uh, concurrent conferences taking place in Oakland in October, Verge uh, Energy, Verge Transport, and Verge Circular, uh, we're doing three different Accelerate pitches and three sort of competitions within the competition. What are you seeing in terms of where the most excitement is in terms of energy transport and, and circular? Is it evenly distributed or is there some where there's more startups than the others? Given the extent to which energy has really been at the heart of Verge also since its inception, we we definitely received a higher volume of, of, of applications and nominations from uh, startups in the energy space. Um, but I'm really pleased at the sort of equal distribution and the diversity, both of the types of solutions. We have a lot of hardware and software. Um, you know, we've got people from truly coming all around the world uh, that had submitted these videos, which by the way, you can check out and still have time to cast your vote on the Accelerate voting page on the Verge 18 website. We curated from almost 100 nominations down to 35 semifinalists um, and have each of those videos, their 60-second pitch videos vote posted on our website. You can check out those videos and cast your votes and help, help inform uh, which six or seven within each category are going to have the chance to pitch at Verge. Well, I'm tempted to ask you for your favorites, but I'm sure you love all your children. So tell me a couple uh, that you think are interesting or surprising or noteworthy this year. Well, one thing I'm really excited about is the extent to which, you know, in the past, Verge Accelerate has been sort of a Verge mashup. We've had agriculture solutions next to distributed energy solutions next to water solutions. And this year, that the fact that we're going to have three um, sort of vertical-based or industry-based pitch sessions is kind of giving us an opportunity 
to dive deeper. So like within Circular, for example, there's a company called Lime Loop um, that's reimagining packaging by really creating sustainable alternatives to traditional shipping materials, which obviously has a huge B2B um, angle, which is core to us at Verge. Um, Others are taking on, you know, fabrics and, and, and the fashion industry, which is a huge opportunity within Circular. You know, within transportation, we've got solutions ranging from those that are addressed, you know, applying AI to to fix the algorithms in streetlights and improve uh, congestion and mobility to uh, peer-to-peer networks for EV charging stations. And, and within energy too, we've got a number of blockchain solutions that are working to bring decentralized micro power grids to off-grid communities and, you know, other uh, distributed energy resource solutions. So I'm really excited about, again, the diversity and the quality. Well, I can tell that you're excited. That definitely shows. Um, Talk a little bit about sort of looking back. We've been doing this for a number of years, as you said. Some of these companies have come to Verge and and pitched on the big stage and I think gotten funding or have gotten partners, gotten customers. There must be some good success stories you like to point to. It's interesting because one of the natures of our business and what we do with Verge is kind of have to trust that the magic will unfold in itself. So there've been real time stories of, you know, advisors coming on board after having heard a pitch on stage and, you know, investment that happened. Um, I've heard a couple stories in real time, but what's what's most inspiring to me and, and really makes the work so worthwhile is the way in which the stories kind of circle back around six months, a year, several years later. In fact, my colleague, Sydney Massing-Schaefer, who who leads our startup showcase, she and I recently did an exercise of actually going through and looking at where are past Accelerate companies in their current funding. And, you know, our our cap is 5 million in combined investment revenue. So we focus on early stage and we have at least a quarter that are now over over 10 million in, in investment and growing. Freewire Technologies, which pitched, I think, two years ago at Verge, is now recently raised their next series and are at over 15 million. Axiom Energy is another that pitched at Verge Hawaii a couple years ago, is now over 10. Scoot Networks, which was one of the first accelerators, is now you could see their um, their scooters all over the country, really, um, fast and growing. So those are the kinds of stories of, of investment, of advisors, of new partners, of pilot projects um, that make this... this what this work is all about. Well, no doubt the magic will shine through once again this year, thanks to your good work. Uh, Tell everybody what they get to do. They get to vote uh, once per day, per category or something. Just give us the rules and and what's the window of, of the community voting. Well, I'm glad you asked. If you go to the Verge 18 website, you can check out the forward slash accelerate voting page. You'll see all of these entrepreneurs 60 second videos uh, by category. And that's exactly right. You can cast one vote per category per day. We've got some nice descriptions to give you a sense of what these solutions are all about. Uh, Ultimately, our internal judging committee makes the final call based on who we think has the greatest potential to benefit from exposure at Verge, what kinds of solutions we think our audience of corporates and government officials are going to want to hear from but uh, casting your votes certainly helps inform decide. We'll link to that from the webpage for this podcast, uh, Vote Early, Vote Often. Shauna Rappaport is Director of Strategic Programs at GreenViz and the host of Verge Accelerate. Thanks, Shauna. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. 
You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out the link for our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to GreenBiz 350's director, Stephanie Joyce. I'll be off next week, but Heather will be back for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>